Well, good evening, 5 p.m. How are we doing tonight? I was told uh, that they're saving the best for last, which is why we got this. Brandon, you're preaching on it. Would you just stop already? Like, but I am so honored and privileged to go through the text uh, this evening with this. And when I, I first became a Christian in 2011, and one of my good friends I actually brought to know the Lord in 2012. Um, he had just come back from the military, and I knew that his mindset was different. I knew that the, the, the reason that he was living was changing. I knew that the attitudes that he had was a little bit different than what he was prior to me knowing him in high school. And be, becoming, becoming a new Christian, I kind of had this kind of desire and emphasis to share my story and figure out what it was about uh, where he went that kind of brought him to that type of area of life. And we started developing a relationship over the next couple months. And uh, we got, finally got to a point where I asked, I said, Eric, I said, what is it about biblical Christianity that just keeps you away from complete freedom? And he looked at me and he said, Brandon, I just can't wrap my mind around heaven. And I said, me neither. Great. This is great. But I, I, I have faith that it's going to be beautiful. But I was like, you know what? I was still so new. So I gave him a book to read. And less than 48 hours later, my young adult pastor at that time calls me and said, hey, that book that you gave Eric actually convinced him. I just prayed the prayer of repentance over his life. And he saved. I just want to thank you for your faithfulness and and honoring to, to share your story. And I was just so excited. And fast forward a couple years, he got engaged and I knew the question was coming. Brandon, will you be my groomsman? And in my mind, I'm like, I rightfully deserve the best man. Um, I brought him to know Jesus. So, I mean, I'll settle for two or three, but if, I'm, I'm, but if I get any lower, there's gonna be some legitimate problems. On your wedding day, may I add. Um, but so as we start going through the rehearsal, that day comes where the rehearsal happens and the coordinator is putting the people together, um, figuring out who's standing side by side. And so the best man comes up and it was his brother. So I was like, fine, great. Um, I get it. I get it. Uh, he, I mean, he wasn't around, but whatever. It's not even my, my big deal. <laughs> And then I start kind of making my trek like towards like the second stage. Like I just made a 40 foot putt at the masters. Like, you know, like, and then somebody else gets called and I'm like, now I'm starting to question our friendship. Um, how am I not one or two? Uh, and then I'm, I'm okay. I'm like three is okay. Somebody else. And now I'm about to take off my jacket and leave. Um, I didn't feel like I deserved to be fourth or lowest. And out of all eight groomsmen, guess what number I was? Eight. I was so bitter. Like, to the point where, like, he said, Brandon, would you like to be my, my side? Not Brandon, would you like to be a country over, but next to me. And so I'm like, Eric, 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 Eric. Nice to be here, here, here. And as the people were standing next to me, I started measuring myself up. I said, so how long have you known Eric? Two years? Cute. I've known him a lot longer than that. Good to see you, bud. You're number seven. Um, and then I go to number six, and I'm like, hey, what Eric give you for uh, the wedding gift? He's like, a, t a tie, really, that you'll wear twice? That's great. Yeah. 
He gave me actually a sleeve of Pro V1 golf balls that I'll probably play on the course with him and you won't be there, but good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. Next guy, I'm like, didn't you move to San Francisco and completely remove yourself from Eric's life? Good to see you, number six. And what I found myself doing was ranking myself. I deserve to be higher when I lost focus of the fact that I was just celebrating the groom. I was there to be with him on his day in holy matrimony, vowing before God and man that I, I, I am gonna hold this man accountable to the vows he gives his wife forevermore. Don't we all deal with this? Don't we have this ranking in, in us, in our businesses, at school, in our relationships? And I, I, I truly believe that the disciples were having this same type of thing. Jesus just gets done saying, when are you gonna betray me? And all of a sudden they start arguing and they've lost track that the groom was right there. Jesus, man in perfect glory, was sitting there right in front of them and they completely lost track of that. Because of what they've achieved, what they've accomplished, what they were doing as far as closeness to Jesus. And they, they forget it all. Completely forgot it all. So over the last several weeks, we've been going over Love Walked Among Us. And Love Walked Among Us is, 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 is an incredible title because what we've been doing is going through the biographies of Jesus, the gospels of Jesus. And we've looked at the real life circumstances, signs and wonders of Jesus's life. And if we believe that God is love and Jesus and God are one, that means that Jesus is love and we're watching him react to other people. It's been incredibly humbling. It's been incredibly joyful. It's been incredibly awesome to see a God that we serve react in such a different way, but it's also been incredibly challenging because it forces us to confront the countercultural life that he lives. And so if you're a note taker, the big idea is this. The way of Jesus is of counter-cultural service. Would you pray with me? God, I'm, I'm guilty of constantly believing that I deserve more. I believe we all deal with this. And so we repent of that now. This is a piece of scripture that people that have been around church or even in church have heard multiple times. And so I just pray that you uh, alleviate the monotony of this, but that you show yourself in a new and a fresh way. God, I believe that there's a corporate word, but I also believe individually that you can speak to us in our own situations, in our own circumstances. Would you use me to do that? We love you. And all of 5 p.m. said? Amen. All right, all right. Just to set the stage here, this is the third time, the third time that Jesus confronts this who is the greatest epidemic. Third time. The first time we find in Mark chapter nine, where James, John, and Peter were just kicking it with Jesus, walking back to C Capernaum, and he comes across the other nine disciples arguing about not being able to uh, take a demon out of this individual. None of them could pray for him and get it out, and they were arguing about that, and Jesus says this in Matthew 9, 35. 
or, or Mark 9:35, sorry. I messed that up. Bear with me a sec. He says this. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of, his, of them and, look, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The second time we find in Matthew 20, where James and John believe that because they were closest, they used their mom to get their CFO jobs in heaven. They use their moms to say, hey, our sons, right next to you, please. And Jesus confronts that. And he says this in Matthew 20, verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man did not come to serve or did not, the man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we find this one in Luke 22. To give some context here, Jesus is hours away from his brutal execution on a cross for the sins of the world. And then he drops the spiritual nuke before that happens and he says, but somebody here is gonna betray me. And all of a sudden, the disciples start disputing among them which is the greatest. Now we don't know based off this text what it was, but I would I would venture to say it went something like this. Some of you are going to betray me. Judas is like it's probably Philip, and Philip's like I gave Jesus the five loaves to feed the 5000. There's no way. It's probably Bartholomew. Bartholomew's like I'm never mentioned. There's no way it can be me. It was probably Peter. Peter's like he gave me the name Rock. Are you serious? It's probably Thomas, and Thomas is like I doubt that. <laughs> but do you see how silly that is? Jesus. And if I were Jesus and I heard that, I would take that unleavened bread and I would smack them all in the face. But good thing I'm not Jesus because there would also be a lot of lightning bolt deaths nowadays. But he doesn't act that way, does he? He confronts it completely different. And what I've, what I've realized and what I believe God revealed to me that is if we're not deeply connected with Jesus, we can become disconnected with others. And so I wanna look at three things that I believe God's trying to show us tonight. The first point is this. Self-interest blinds our ability to love. You see that in verse 24, Luke 22, verse 24, it says this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them is regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings and the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now I, um, since I became a Christian, I would consider myself somebody who likes to, in, to kind of understand who Jesus is. And out of all of the times that I've read scripture, I don't think I've ever had to gone, go to Webster's Dictionary to figure out something that Jesus says. But he says this word benefactor and it just stood out to me. And so what I found out what a benefactor was is, is in essence, somebody who does something for their own praise. My wife is incredible. She loves to clean and I hate it. 
like to the nth degree. Like I would have to at least have six scoops of pre-workout to even like dust my floor. Okay, so, but she is so good at it. She loves to create the environment of our house beautifully. And with our newborn baby son, that kind of restricts the ability of her being able to do that. So me, as a husband trying to learn how to be a husband, uh, I would try to pick up what she lacks in certain areas. And so I clean um, and I make her know that I did. She'll come home and she'll, she'll, she'll probably know that it's done. And she, in her mind, because she's so wonderful, it was like, he's just serving me. And then I'm on the couch like, doesn't the house look good, babe? I did that. Or the dryer has been dried for three days and, and I just don't get it out. And so when she gets home, I'll turn the dryer on one more time just so that she knows that I'm being a faithful husband. Or even doing the dishes, she'll be upstairs and I'll purposefully drop a cup on the ground just, and then turn it on high water so that I was like, babe, this is, I'm doing this. Do you see it? Can you affirm me? My pride is getting in the way of just serving my wife. Jesus in no way, shape or form says, hey, Look at me, everybody. And so what he does is he flips the definition of greatness. He completely alters it. Society, and we believe that greatness is the next promotion. Greatness is how I can get. Greatness is how many A's I can get. I mean, those are all good. But when it becomes our sole motivation, that's where it becomes dangerous. The benefactor says, it's, 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 benefactor says, as long as it helps me, and Jesus says, as long as it helps you. And so, what Jesus ends up doing is, is something remarkable, and something that I believe we can all learn from, which leads me to point two, that says, the way you get noticed in the kingdom is by going unnoticed. It's even there in verse 26. Do you see that? But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Out of all the words that Jesus can use, he uses youngest. Why? Can't he just say the very bottom, me? <laughs> Can't he use different words? Let me show you a picture of my son. Yeah, see that? Aww, in this culture? Ooh. If you didn't have gray hair, if you weren't the oldest, you didn't have a say. Our culture says, oh, this guy is the cutest boy ever. In their culture, completely written off. And Jesus says, become like him. Become the overlooked. 
Become the people that are unnoticed. Become the people that don't have a say. And what he's calling us to be is a countercultural community. And so I've written some things down that I believe the culture tells us. And then in retrospect, what I believe Jesus says. Here's the first one. The culture tells us, how much money can I get? Jesus says, how much money can I give? Culture says, how many people can affirm me? Jesus says, how many people can I celebrate? Culture says, drive right past the panhandlers. Jesus says, don't refuse the borrowers. Culture says, revenge is the best medicine. Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven. Culture says, the mentally and the physically strong survive. Jesus says, the weak are made strong. Culture says, if you want to, if you want, if they want to fight, you fight them back. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And the last one, if, if culture says, if you get stolen from, sue them. Jesus says, give them your jacket also. How countercultural are you? How many of these things are stuff that we consider the daily job that we have? I would venture to say that we're not very good at that. I would venture to say that the stuff that the culture says is partially our first inclination. How big can I be? How strong can I get? How things? The way of Jesus is against the grain. The way of Jesus is people stepping back and say, why, why are you doing that? I, I don't get that. Well, let me tell you about a God that I serve. And how does Jesus do that? Because not only does he say it in Luke 22, he actually lives it in John 13. And we see that with my next point. My third point is this, serving and loving are inseparable. And you see that in John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that wrapped around him. This was inconvenient. This was disgusting. And yet he serves these disciples that way. He's inconveniencing himself for the benefit of somebody else. How often do we do that? How often do we do things just because we're in town? It's convenient. 
Nothing else is going on. Now, if you do that, it's great. Keep doing it. But Jesus says, make a difference. Get, in, get inconvenienced. Just to give you some context behind this act that he does, feet washing were typically a non-Jewish slave's job done at a rival. The feet were considered the most disgusting part of, and probably still to this day are, the most disgusting part on a human's body. But more so for them because they didn't have boots. They didn't have laced up vans. They didn't have slip-ons. They had sandals where toes are exposed and dirt's getting in the crevices. Yet Jesus, in all humility, gets up from supper. Can't you imagine what these disciples are thinking? Like, Jesus, can you sit back down? Can you? This this is getting a little weird. And Jesus takes off his garment, ties a towel around his waist, and gets lower than his disciples. Give me your foot. I love you. I'm doing this because I care about you. With no reciprocation. And it even says that it wiped the dirt on the towel that was wrapped around him, which means all of the mess, all of the dirt was on Jesus. Wow. Some of us have been in the following Jesus for quite a while. And yet this still is, uh, I'll do, I'll do everything, but (laughs) have you seen her feet? (laughs) And some of us aren't followers of Jesus because maybe the baggage we carry or the stuff we hold on to is just too messy. Friends, this is good news. That a man ascended from heaven, bankrupted heaven, to come and serve perfectly among us. In days before his execution, washes his mess to symbolically look to, and symbolically illustrate what I'm about to do is forevermore. It's for you and it's for everybody moving forward. And in the past, the sins that I'm gonna take on, the mess that I'm gonna carry, there's no mess that I can't clean. My wife is an incredible mother. I'm an unincredible dad. But I am blown away at how well she loves my son. She laughs when his poop gets on him. (laughs) 
now. She washes him. She wakes up in the middle of the night without waking me up. Because I probably wouldn't anyways. I'm kidding. I would. Maybe. But she, she doesn't owe Beckett anything. But yet she sacrificially and lovingly serves him undeservingly. Friends, we are the Becketts. We are getting served and washed clean undeservingly. And yet he does it with all love and all respect and all honor because hoping at one day we would show him the same. Man, I love that reckless love song. It gets me every single time. And I researched the, the writer of that, Corey Asbury. And this is what he has to say. It's kind of a long quote, so it'll be on the Sky Bible up there if you need it. But this is what he has to say in regards to that quote. Or in regards to that song. We're not saying that God himself is reckless. He's not crazy. We are saying how he loves in many regards, quite so. He's utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions in regard to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike, and may I even suggest sometimes downright ridiculous. His love bankrupted heaven for you and me. His love doesn't consider himself first. It's not selfish or self-serving. It doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself on the line. He puts himself out there given the off chance that we would look back and give him the same love in return. His love leaves the 99 for the one every time and to many practical adults is a foolish concept. What if he loses the 99 in finding the one? What if finding that one lost sheep will always be supremely important? Make no mistake, our sins do not pain, or our sins pain, do pain his heart, and 70 times seven is a lot of times to get your heart broken, and yet he opens back up every single time. Can you imagine if we were that type of community? Can you imagine if we are working? towards the initiative of becoming the best friend our community has. Can you imagine being that type of person? <sighs> Come on, somebody. That's gonna change Queen Creek. This is a beautiful picture that we should always be reminded of when we're pushed to discomfort and pride, inability, Jesus loves you so much that he's constantly willing to wash you regardless of how messy you are. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing, good, good father. I am utterly undeserving of the grace that you've placed on my life, yet I receive it in faith. 
God, I pray that as we continue to move forward from Monday to Saturday, that this wouldn't go unnoticed, that we would constantly look for ways to go unnoticed, look for ways to bless, look for ways to love, look for ways to celebrate, look for ways to give, because you did that for us. Thank you so much for what you're doing and what you're gonna continue to do. We love you so much. And everybody said?